play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, the very first Your Last Meal Thanksgiving, which is actually more of a Friendsgiving because we are inviting past guests back to the table to have a Thanksgiving potluck. Country music star Martina McBride is bringing the salad. Actor Zasha Mamet is bringing marshmallow sweet potato casserole and cranberry sauce. Director Greta Gerwig is bringing the stuffing. And Christopher Kimball of America's Test Kitchen in Milk Street is on pie duty. Now, what about the turkey? Well, nobody wants turkey for their last meal. So I invited food historian Ken Albala to the table to explain why we eat turkey on Thanksgiving. Why do we why why do we eat turkey on Thanksgiving? And we have a special guest, the star of my next episode, so it's a little bit of a preview, comedian and musician Reggie Watts. I am so glad that you're here. I hope the show is keeping you company while you do all of your holiday things like cooking the Thanksgiving meal or cleaning your house, or maybe you're out on a secret walk hiding from your family. Regardless, you look very hungry. Let's sit down and eat the first Your Last Meal Thanksgiving. What are your feelings on salad at the Thanksgiving table? Not beige enough for a holiday meal? Too many other good things to eat? Well, we're going to start our Thanksgiving meal with a salad, but you won't find a single leaf of lettuce in the bowl, or any vegetable for that matter. Grammy-nominated country music star Martina McBride grew up in teeny-tiny Sharon, Kansas, where all you need to call something a salad is some Cool Whip. There's this weird thing that I make for holidays called the fluff salad, which is another family (laughs) weird thing with marshmallows and pimento cheese and um, pineapple and what else is in there. Anyway, so the marshmallow thing, I want to know more. So is it marshmallow fluff or is it little just marshmallow sprinkle? Can you tell me more about this dish? Sure. Okay. It's, <laughs> okay. It's more like candy than it. I mean, it's, it's, it's called a salad. We call it a, I call it a fluff salad, but it's really, I think it's from the fifties too. It's like you take a, a little jar of the pimento cheese, not, not like your Southern pimento cheese, but like there's like a craft pimento cheese in a little jar and you put it into a bowl and then you put a small can of pineapple tidbits that have been drained, you mix that together. Then you add a half a bag of marshmallows and you mix that up some more. And then you add a carton of Cool Whip. <laughs> yes. yes. And it makes it all. The secret to it is you mix it, mix it, mix it. And when you think it's mixed, you mix it some more because then it really starts to fluff up. It gets really, really fluffy. And then you put it in the refrigerator at least a couple hours, preferably overnight. And, and it's like the best thing ever. And like I make it for Christmas and Thanksgiving. There are certain foods that I like to keep really special, like only on special occasions. Yeah. And everybody takes it for granted and it kind of brings back good memories. I also believe in self-inflicted scarcity. I love In-N-Out Burger, but I'm actually really glad that we don't have any locations in Washington because I like having something to look forward to. I look forward to getting that cheeseburger maybe once a year, sometimes every other year when I find myself near an In-N-Out. Sometimes anticipation 
is the most delicious part of a meal, which is also why I love the Thanksgiving meal so much. It is the only time all year that I eat stuffing, only time I eat pumpkin pie, cranberry sauce. I don't think the meal would be as special if we ate it all the time. Which leads us to our next course. Since we already started the meal with marshmallows, we might as well double down. What is your opinion on sweet potatoes with marshmallows? I mean, here's the thing. I grew up with them. So I'm like, obviously. That's actor Zasha Mamet. I love her. She played Shoshana in the TV show Girls, and she starred in The Flight Attendant. She also published a very cute collection of food-related essays called My First Popsicle. Why not? I mean, it is literally a dessert that you were adding to the main course. I don't know. I mean, especially as a child, I thought they were epic. You have marshmallows on top of a sweet potato. I'm a big sweet potato lover. So I was just like, this is a hat on a hat. This is the best hat on top of the best hat. (laughs) Zasha's husband doesn't share her excitement for the polarizing Thanksgiving casserole. He didn't grow up with them. And so it's less like an aversion and more sort of a confusion. Mm -hmm. He's like, I don't understand. Like if you put chocolate on the turkey, he's like, I don't Uh get it. Yeah, but that's just Uh, a mole, tell him. Right, exactly. (laughs) What's a caramel sauce like on a steak? Well, they use caramel in Vietnamese cooking for savory things. So yeah. I love that you have a spin for all of this. Yeah. If you're just as confused as Zasha's husband, let me explain. To make sweet potato marshmallow casserole, you mash a bunch of roasted sweet potatoes, mix in plenty of butter, brown sugar, and pumpkin pie spices, and then you dump all of that sweet orange mush into a casserole dish, cover it with mini marshmallows, and then broil it until the little marshies are melted and the whole thing is golden brown. Where did this dish come from? Actually, a sweet potato casserole is a very, very old dish. And there's a version of it in the first American cookbook. So it has been around in print since the 1790s. That's Rick Rogers, author of Thanksgiving 101. But originally, it was like mashed sweet potatoes with some eggs, and it was more like pudding. Marshmallows is a very, very old candy. Been around since Egyptian times, 2000 BC. There really is a plant called the mallow, gorgeous. It looks like one of those big hibiscus plants with big flowers. But the sap of the mallow is very sticky. So someone realized that you could take the sticky sap and mix it with honey or sugar and turn it into candy. So that is how the marshmallow came into being. Then somebody in the late 1800s in America, this is also the same two brothers that learned how to make Cracker Jack. They commercialized marshmallows. And in 1917, there was a company called the Angelus Marshmallow Company. And what they did is they put marshmallows on top of the classic sweet potato casserole for the first time. Back in the day, companies would hire recipe developers to come up with dishes that would help sell more of their products. They'd put these recipes on brochures, print them in women's magazines, or write on the package itself. And this is exactly what the Angelus Marshmallow Company did. So they went to the Boston Cookery School, which is where Fanny Farmer worked. But you probably do not know the name Janet Mackenzie Hill. And Janet Mackenzie Hill also worked for the Boston Cookery School. And so a lot of the recipes, the popularization that we get for marshmallows comes from that particular brochure. This is where the idea for Rocky Road ice cream came from. I love Rocky Road. Or maybe you've had like a southern 
fruit salad. Ambrosia. Marshmallows and yeah, well, yeah, Ambrosia. So we have Janet McKenzie Hill to thank for really popularizing the marshmallows. Rick says so many of our favorite holiday dishes were created by companies to sell more products. Green bean casserole has a similar story, wasn't that made by yes. someone at a brand? Yeah, so that was invented by Campbell Soup in about 1955 by a home economist whose name is Dorcas Riley. She was looking for a way to use cream of mushroom soup. I think I know what you're going to ask about next. The cranberry sauce. I mean. Back to Zasha, canned or homemade. So I'm a little bit Switzerland when it comes to cranberry sauce. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. If I have to choose in a pinch, I'm going to go canned because I don't want to make homemade cranberry sauce. Uh Uh-huh. A mountain that I do not feel like climbing. And if they're both there, I'll honestly probably put both on my plate because I love a sauce. I eat way too much ketchup in my life. Condiments are probably, according to my doctor, too prevalent in my diet. But like... <laughs> your doctor knows about your condiment use? No, he definitely doesn't. Okay. I just recently <laughs> had my blood work with my yearly blood work done. And I'm sort of like, what's it going to be? I don't like, know. We found like, out I your have... blood type is ketchup. It's just ketchup <laughs> through your veins. My blood type is ketchup. Ketchup and coffee. That's the name of my next cookbook. But I will, I will eat both. I will eat both. But people feel strongly about that. I do. I like the can, even though I'm a food snob. It is. I think it's what you grow up with. But it's also the texture. Like, I like the slipperiness of the can. Yeah. Like the rigid. It's the groove. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's kind of sexy. It's like a curvy cranberry lady. And it jiggles. Jiggles a little. Yeah, she does. Jiggle, jiggle. Jiggle, jiggle. If we're going to talk cranberry sauce we have to refer to the kings and queens of cranberries. Ocean Spray. Ocean Spray's head of marketing, Dan Hamilton, says cranberries are one of the few indigenous American fruits, and Native Americans have been eating them for centuries. Ocean Spray released its first cans in 1941. Canning the cranberry sauce allowed a fruit with a short fall season to be enjoyed year-round. You know, in the process of harvesting cranberries, they can get a little beat up at times. We had all these cranberries that still retained all the awesome benefits that are in the cranberry. They just weren't pretty enough to sell in the produce aisle. So it really started with, yes, trying to find something to do with all of these extra berries. A can was the perfect home for bruised berries. And there's exactly 17 ridges in that can. Want to know another fun fact? The number of cranberries used in each can of jellied cranberry sauce is 200. One more fact for the cheap seats in the back. So Americans consume over 80 million pounds of cranberries on Thanksgiving week alone. So Ocean Spray sells canned cranberry sauce, but like you said, you also sell the bags of fresh cranberries. So you are allowed to have an opinion here because you sell both of them. (laughs) What do you prefer when you're sitting at the Thanksgiving table and there's a bowl of the homemade cranberry sauce and then there's the can of the cranberry sauce, both Ocean Spray products, which one do you reach for first? You know, Rachel, I think it all comes down to how you were raised. I absolutely prefer the canned cranberry sauce. I grew up not chewing my cranberry sauce. Yeah, yeah. Out of the can, it melts in your mouth. There's just something iconic and so nostalgic, right, about that shape and that feel of the sauce. I am 100% a canned sauce guy. Me too. I'm a canned sauce guy too. 
All right, time for a break. But when we come back, we'll be joined by comedian and musician Reggie Watts. Reggie grew up with a French mom and an American dad, and he shares what was on his family's multicultural Thanksgiving table. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Palsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. Many American Thanksgiving tables look exactly the same. The big bronze turkey, stuffing, buttery mashed potatoes, green bean casserole, pumpkin pie, you know the scene. But I have always been interested in immigrant holiday tables. For example, some Asian families might have the turkey, but they will also have the requisite pot of rice on the table. Or like a sticky rice and Chinese sausage stuffing. One of my ex-boyfriends is the son of Egyptian immigrants, and when I spent Thanksgiving at his mom's house, we had a Cajun turkey from KFC with all the KFC sides, spiced meat patties that are called kofta. And in the past, I was told that she was known to serve spaghetti and hot dogs. Whenever we'd have a holiday meal, it, was, it always had canard d'orange and escargot. So it was that was always part of it. That's Reggie Watts. Reggie spent eight years as the band leader for The Late Late Show with James Corden. He's a comedian, beatboxer. He just wrote a memoir called Great Falls, Montana. And he will be the guest on next week's episode of Your Last Meal. Reggie grew up with an American dad and a French mom. So I enjoyed that aspect of it. And yeah, so instead of turkey, we would have that. We would have duck. But sometimes we'd make a turkey and that. And then my favorite Thanksgiving food, I I really love stuffing. Like when stuffing's made correctly, it's just the best. And, And a gravy can be good too, but gravy has to be really, really good. Otherwise, it's kind of depressing. I think like things have to taste really, really good if they're going to be unhealthy. But obviously, it's a holiday meal, so whatever. But if it tastes incredible, then I feel better about having something that might be a little too heavy. Totally. What I need, you know? Uh, what but, to you makes it a perfect stuffing? I don't need it to be really fancy. Like, so I guess some people put like chestnuts 
in there. Like they'll roast the chestnuts and they'll put that in the stuffing. I think that that can be good, but it just has to be good bread. And then I guess whatever you put in the stuffing, but usually like if it's in the bird and you get that nice like absorption of all those juices and stuff like that, that's kind of like mostly, that's all I need. A simple stuffing for me is, is great. And cranberry sauce, because really you want the tartness. The tartness is the thing that makes it delicious. I think that all of those flavors together, like the, if it's a tender bird or whatever it is, I prefer chicken to turkey. Turkey's hard yeah. to get, right? But if you have roast chicken, then you've got like the stuffing that's like been in there. It's really good. And you've got like a nice natural grounded cranberry sauce. That all goes together in such an amazing way with a little bit of gravy. It's great. There it is. Reggie said it. The thing that a lot of us are afraid to say out loud, turkey is not that good. It can be dry. It doesn't usually have a lot of flavor, which is maybe why Reggie's family grew up eating duck a l'orange and escargot. So I don't think any of you will be surprised to hear that not a single Your Last Meal guest has chosen turkey for their last meal. But we've heard pretty much every other protein. Roast chicken, steak is the most common last meal on the show. Folks have requested wild duck, lobster, oysters, hot dogs, spam, scrapple. Rick Astley wants raw shrimp. But turkey? Mm -mm. I don't think that a lot of people love turkey. I think people eat it because it's there or maybe they kind of like it. My heart is broken. Oh, great. We'll talk about that in a minute. That's Ken Albala, professor of history at the University of the Pacific, author or editor of 25 books on food, and friend of the podcast. I wanted to know why we eat turkey on Thanksgiving. What was it about turkeys? I think the appeal was that it's a big bird. Big birds are associated with aristocracy and elegance, so you wait for a really important day. The other thing is that the reason aristocrats really liked light meat was because they thought it was digestible for people who don't get a lot of exercise. For thinkers and for scholars and for people who just don't get a lot of physical heat in their stomachs to cook the food, uh, that's what they thought was going on in your stomach, literally cooking it. But light fowl is the most precious, according to them, in, in terms of medical theory. So a big bird is just kind of the the quintessentially elegant food in their minds because it's light, easily digested, not very fatty, and it just impresses people because you can break it out and you see the whole bird, right? Ken says a lot of traditional Thanksgiving foods have medieval roots. Sort of any time you throw a big feast, the most elegant of foods in the 17th century especially would have been wild fowl. So that's not, you know, invented out of broad cloth. They would use um, guinea fowl, which arrived in the 16th century, or pheasants, or anything elegant. And they would do things like take the bird out of its skin and feathers, cook the bird, and then put the feathers back on, on it so it appears as if it's alive. They did this with peacocks all the time. And in one recipe, there's a little bit of uh, camphor soaked in uh, on a piece of cotton put into the bird's mouth and lit. So it's spewing flames as it comes to the table. This is in uh, Maestro Martino. So that's 15th century. You know, they, So a standard kind of banqueting thing uh, when you're feasting is to have a large presentation bird of some kind. So it kind of makes sense. The other thing that I think really makes sense about Thanksgiving is stop and think of the weird accompaniments that we have for this dish that really don't look like any other American food. A fruit to go with a with a fowl is really unusual. That is a completely medieval combination of flavors. Now, they wouldn't have had cranberries per se, unless they, there was relatives up in the 
in Scandinavia of similar berries, but the whole idea of taking a berry puree and mixing it with a bird, raspberries in Turkey was actually one that appears in 17th century French cookbooks and is made fun of late in the century following just because of how crazy and medieval that is. And it is a weird combination. There's weird things that happen in Thanksgiving that really go back to its medieval roots that are still there in the 17th century. And I think the most important of these is what other meal do we have someone ceremoniously standing at the end of the table carving a bird? That is a completely and utterly Renaissance thing. It was a position of honor to be a a trinchante in Italian, that would be the person who had a, a so big knife, would hold the bird up on a fork and carve it in midair so that slices fell down on people's plates elegantly. And there's no other meal really where we ceremonially you know, insist that the head of the household is doing carving and then apportioning onto, onto a platter or plate directly onto plates. That's a really medieval thing. Americans didn't celebrate Thanksgiving until President Abraham Lincoln declared it a national holiday in 1863. But it wasn't his idea. A writer named Sarah Josepha Hale petitioned for decades, asking that a national holiday be established to bring Americans from the North and South together during the Civil War. And President Lincoln finally granted her wish. Fun fact, Sarah is the author of Mary Had a Little Lamb. Alexander Hamilton, he declared, quote, no citizen of the U.S. shall refrain from Turkey on Thanksgiving Day. At this time, were people already eating turkey for Thanksgiving? Alexander Hamilton? <laughs> really? I cannot believe that. No. I mean, turkey is not uncommon in the 18th century, but he would not certainly would not have associated it with Thanksgiving. Uh, more likely with Christmas. Do you think that that's one of those things that's not true? It's like all over the Internet. I can't imagine. I will look it up for you if you really want, want me to, to hunt it down. But that sounds so implausible to me. Well, because they really just didn't have a, have Thanksgiving. I mean, that's an invented, re, reinvented holiday. And Alexander Hamilton is 65 years off before that holiday would have existed. I'm looking right now. So he died in 1804 and Thanksgiving wasn't declared a national holiday until 1864. Exactly. I would love you to look into that because every single website that talks about Thanksgiving history has that quote. So I'm curious. You know how the internet works. One person writes something and then another yeah. person copies it and then it becomes yeah. the truth. <laughs> One article said that Alexander Hamilton wanted everybody eating the same thing on this holiday because they wanted to create a national sensibility and say, we're not English anymore. We are American now. Alexander Hamilton was English. Okay. I mean, he was, he was born in Barbados. In fact, it was not, not even, um, you know, born in the colonies. I think, gosh, I will look this up, man. Cause it just, it doesn't make sense for Alexander Hamilton either. This is not, not one of those things that seems in character at all for him. He's not known for being interested in food at all. Unlike say Ben Franklin, who yeah. really liked turkeys and thought it should be the national bird. And I'd wondered if that was why it became the dish we eat on Thanksgiving, because it then gets to, you know, represent America in a different way. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you can't eat a bald eagle. So that's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Ken connected me with food historian Ashley Rose Young, who often speaks on Thanksgiving food history. Ashley looked into this and she couldn't find that Alexander Hamilton quote in any official records. And just like Ken, she had never heard that quote before. So I am here to officially debunk this quote. And Ken says the tradition of Americans eating turkey only started about 100 to 150 years ago. Okay, so I started this interview by insulting 
a poultry that you love. I was saying that I don't <laughs> think a lot of people love turkey. They kind of just eat it out of tradition. And you doth protest. Doth. Um, so I think turkey, if cooked properly, is exquisite. It's the easiest bird to make a gravy out of. And I think the the people's dissatisfaction with turkey comes from the fact that people overcook it. <laughs> it just comes out this, my mother did it every single Thanksgiving, dry as a bone. It was just like awful. They were afraid of salmonella and they were afraid of, you know, eating meat that's slightly pink and it should be slightly, it's underdone, I think, you know, to taste good. And when it's cooked properly and seasoned, you know, you've got to salt the thing very well and you've got to, um, or brine it. I've pretty much tried every single way of making turkey that exists. And I think the best is curing and smoking it is just like it comes out magnificent. You can do anything to a turkey. You can even boil a turkey um, and it's fine. You just can't throw it in the oven and forget about it. Leave it there for six hours because it comes out tasting like nothing. After the break, Greta Gerwig shares her dad's unusual stuffing recipe. And then it's time for dessert. Welcome back to the Your Last Meal Thanksgiving holiday special. Let's recover from all that dry turkey talk with a moist, well-loved side dish. Stuffing. Yeah, I just said the M word. But it's true. Stuffing is moist. If you have a better way to describe it, let me know. But before you pull out the thesaurus, our next course comes from Greta Gerwig, Oscar-nominated director of The Barbie Movie, Little Women, and Lady Bird. And she is the star of one of my favorite films, Frances Ha. When I Googled your name and just the word food, um, all that kept coming up was that you shared a, a Thanksgiving recipe this year, your oh, dad's yeah. stuffing. Yeah. Oh, God, that's got to be part of my last meal, too. Oh, the last meal is just getting more... Carby. Well, that's my <laughs> true love, as, yes. uh, as carbon dairies. Um he just came to New York and um, with my mom and for Thanksgiving, they uh, he made it. And he, so he made that recipe again. Um, it's the Julia Child recipe. It's always it's got olives in it, which is unusual for stuffing. And people always say mm, olives, <laughs> which is um, which is great. But it's 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 the best. And it's always so exciting when it starts going. And then I'm always stealing bites from it as it's cooking. Is it green olives or black? Black olives. That's even more rogue for some reason. I know. Get ready. Uh. Make that recipe. <laughs> no, it's so good, though. What else is in it? I saw sausage. There's sausage. It's I, There's sausage. There's, there's some chopped up capers, which I don't like regular capers, but I don't mind it in this. I mean, it's the regular bread and everything else. It's a lot of onions, garlic. I don't know. I mean, I just chop stuff and put them in. Because you're the best cook in the world. I'm the best helper. And the best eater. My dad is a good cook, actually. And my mom, but my mom and I are like the sous chefs where we prepare everything, you know, on cooking shows where they always have bowls of things just ready. Oh, yeah. We're the people making the bowls of things. They call it mise en place. What is that again? Mise en place? Yeah, that's like when you see cooking shows and there's all the tiny bowls. It, yeah. I think it might mean like everything in its place or something like that, but it's like being super prepped. I see. Yes, that's sort of how I suppose the blue aprons around. Yes, everything yes. in its place. Yes, yeah, exactly. Blue Apron is French for everything in its place. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. The yeah. little known fact. Yeah. 
Did you save room for dessert? I hope you did, because this Thanksgiving, we are having America's favorite pie, apple pie. I still am obsessed with apple pie, because I think it's the hardest thing to make well. And I think it's the ultimate test of your cooking skills. That's Christopher Kimball, founder of America's Test Kitchen and Milk Street, and wearer of bow ties. How many apple pies do you think you've made in your lifetime? Oh, hundreds and hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pies. You know, I've been searching for the perfect pie dough for my entire career. We finally figured it out. What makes this pie perfect? You know, when it's all baked, what are the elements that are perfect for you? For an apple pie? Yeah. If you go back to, you know, an earlier time, people obviously used whatever apples they had, and they might use some wild apples, and they might use three or four varieties. You might use an apple like a Mac that breaks down or something like a Northern Spy, which was originally called Northern Pie Apple for a reason, um, that stands up to baking better. You might have a really tart apple, a really sweet apple. So you'd have a lot of different flavors in the pie. And that's what I try to do is to use more than one variety. And then secondly, no spices. I think cinnamon destroys apple pie. Cinnamon is very powerful and you don't get to taste the apples. So I don't use any spices. I use um, eight cups of apples to half a cup of sugar, depending on the sweetness of the apples, a little salt, um, and lemon juice and lemon zest. And I might put a tablespoon or two of butter on top before I put the top crust on. Then then you, this was a technique that America's Kitchen figured out. Brush the top with water, not egg whites or egg yolks or cream, and then sprinkle it with a big tablespoon of sugar and you get this beautiful glaze on top just with the water and the sugar. And uh, bake it till the crust gets pretty dark. You know, in Europe, they tend to bake their pastries longer because you get more flavor. And uh, you also make sure the edge really cooks through. So I, I get a pretty dark color on the crust, make sure it's really well cooked. And make sure it's fully cooled because a warm apple pie, I don't think has much flavor. I think it's much better cold. In fact, for breakfast in the morning, it's probably the best point. What is your opinion on a la mode? Um, I hate it. Um, <laughs> I, and I'm being honest. Um, I, I don't get it. As a matter of fact, I just had a big fight with Dan Pash for the, the Sporkful podcast about he likes to, to mash up his, his pie with semi-melted ice cream, which also sounds horrible. I like the pie. And a little cheddar, sharp cheddar with apple pie actually is good. But I don't, I don't want drippy ice cream on it because it's going to sog out the crust. And it's too sweet also. I think the great apple pie has to be tart and sweet, you know. And ice cream's got so much sugar in it, it sort of drowns out the, the apple flavor. So I'm, I'm not a big fan. If you listened carefully, you caught Christopher saying that while he hates ice cream on pie, he's totally down for a slice of cheddar on his apple pie. So I called up Jesse Moore, author of The Secret Lives of Baked Goods, a fantastic dessert history cookbook. Where did this come from? Because I think to a lot of people, it sounds really strange. It does sound strange, but if you've never tried it, it does something very good. You know how salt can add just a new dimension to dessert? It's almost like adding the cheese will add a saltiness and a richness and a contrast to the apple. So to the best of my knowledge, this is a tradition that began and to this day, I think, is perpetuated mainly in the northeastern United States. I know that the only people I've ever talked to who do this or even know of it 
are from Vermont or Massachusetts. There's even a cute little rhyme that I love that is, apple pie without the cheese is like a kiss without the squeeze. Ding, ding, ding. Christopher lives in Massachusetts. It all checks out. And that was the very first Your Last Meal Thanksgiving. If you want to hear the full episodes that I featured today with Martina McBride, Sasha Mamet, Greta Gerwig, Christopher Kimball, you can find a link to each in the show notes. If you're not already, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. That way you won't miss a single episode, including our next one with Reggie Watts. Your Last Meal was created and hosted by me. This episode was produced by me with production assistance from Sarah Bernard. Mastering by Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Original theme music by Prom Queen. Your Last Meal is a product of Cascade Public Media in Seattle. Thank you to everybody who came out last week for my sold-out live podcast taping in Seattle with my guest, Amanda Knox. That episode will be hitting the podcast in the near future. But if you don't want to miss out on events like this, sign up for my newsletter. You will be the first to know. It's rachelbell.substack.com. You can find me on Instagram at hellorachelbell. And, you know, maybe leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. All right, friends, I wish you the coziest, most delicious Thanksgiving. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. I'm shocked when I go to airports and see how people show up at airports. I wouldn't walk around my own house the way some people show up in airports. (laughs) Grown men wearing shorts and T-shirts and flip-flops. I'm sorry, I... I, I like dressing up. I think it's nice. You know, I, th- I think it shows respect for other people. And then at the end of the day, you know, you put your jeans on. I bet you iron it. your jeans, though. I do, no, I do not. Okay, iron. okay, okay. <laughs> Please. I'm not, I don't like iron jeans. <laughs>